This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good afternoon. So, Anthem by Leonard Cohn. The birds they sang at the break of day. Start again, I heard them say. Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to be. Ah, the wars, they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold again and bought again. The dove is never free. We asked for signs. The signs were sent. The birth betrayed, the marriage spent. Yea, the widowhood of every government, signs for all to see. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd while the killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they're summoned, they're summoned up a thundercloud and they're going to hear from me. You can add up the parts, but you can't have the sum. You can strike up the march, there is no drum. Every heart, every heart to love will come, but not but like a refugee. Ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So this is a, a very, very famous song. It's a poem, and I've rearranged it as a poem because Leonard Cohn was a poet. He found he couldn't make a living as a poet, so he, uh, kind of like how Bob Dylan started in a way, um, took his poems and made them into songs. Um, and I have used his poetry many times in talks. Uh, and of course, Leonard Cohn, for a number of years, was a Buddhist monk, among many other things. I mean, monk, poet, lonely old man. He had many loves and many losses of loves. A bit depressed, remarkably talented wordsmith, and you could go on from there. Uh, remarkable, complex, and interesting life. And within me, I have many different reactions to his li- more to his life than his work. I enjoy his work. It informs me a lot. A little more judgmental about his life. <laughs> um, and, you know, the last part of this poem has become so often quoted that it's um, almost a cliche in some ways. Um, but I felt it was still worth exploring. So the birds, they sang at the break of day. Start again, I heard them say. Don't dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to be. So here we are all advised by, well, by the well-meaning birds of our life. Let it go. Don't dwell on what cannot be changed. Good advice. But say, what do we know? Change is inevitable. I think any close look at our life will show that. A life is ephemeral and ungraspable. Suffering, said the Buddha, yours and mine, is universal. Happiness and fulfillment have their moments, but they tend to be fleeting or ultimately unsatisfying. 
So what do we know that we can really hang our head on? It's interesting. Um, one of the virtues of living a while is you can look back and see at so many things that you were told would never change, have changed. And just from a, a one particular view, I think back over the years, the Berlin Wall, which for the first half of my life was just fixed and would never change. Uh, the USSR, gone. Uh, the possibility of Obama's president, impossible to consider. The possibility is Trump as president. I mean, do you remember some of the, uh, what some people said? You know, I'd bet a million dollars, I'll donate a million dollars, said the famous pundit if he became president. It's so unlikely. And we can look further back. Giving women the vote, that can't happen. Slaves freed. And we could endlessly go on. And so, in spite of, and sometimes because of these events, and many more like them, we can look at our own life and look back and, um, you know, as the question has, you know, has this journey unwound so far in the way I expected. I'll say more about that later. But the, you know, the karma of our life is pretty significant. And the forces of that karma, the decisions we made, which at the time were clear and obvious and confident and how they ultimately turned out. So Leonard tells us, and the wars they will be fought again. The holy dove, she will be caught again, bought and sold again, and bought again. The dove is never free. I've been thinking a lot about the first noble truth, that life is ever-lying anxiety and um, ever-underlying anxiety and fear and suffering, dis-ease. Uh, and as I usually do, I say from the ordinary perspective that we take as human beings, if you want to load that a little bit from the deluded perspective, that seems semi-universal. And how uneager we are to actually deeply acknowledge that within our life and how eager we are to place something in the path of that anxiety that will temporarily distract ourselves and fix it. So when will the world of right and wrong, good and bad, this or that, be seen through? Because that's the Buddhist path to see through that. I mean, there's the first noble truth and there's the three others, which invite us to see through this. And are our only choices, you know, this or that, war or peace? The dove is never free. Or is the dove free? That's pretty much the fundamental question of our life. I mean, the wars have been going on forever, it seems. Peace is fragile and never lasts, and even when it does, the forces of war are quietly building up behind the curtain as they are now. And so, putting the dove aside, how about you? Are you free? Will you ever be free? Or does the, uh, the hamster on the, the wheel just keep running until we run out of heartbeats.
And I hope it's obvious that the only fundamental freedom that can be found is in you yourself. So right now there's a lot of action and reaction to, let's say, the current political scene uh, fairly clearly demarcated within the United States. But in its own way, it's never been any different. The specifics of it are different. And you can look at certain issues and mark progress, although incomplete or lack of progress. And you can say things are better now than they were in any of these given areas 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 300 years ago. And you can support that with rational arguments. And you can also look at some things and say things are no better or worse. But the place we live is right here in this body and mind. And so without in any way, and this is important, in any way putting aside the, the real fights and demands for human dignity and freedom, that there's a specific context within race and gender and humanness. Um, this although the face of suffering can certainly change, so far as I can see, it's always been present. And I think the Buddha came to the same conclusion. So we have to work with ourselves as the basis of how to have a life that we can fully enter and be, be the full human being that, that is our birthright. And then work from that base. If we work from a base caught in this confusion and struggle and war and demand, even though the demands may be seemingly fully justified in the name of these things that I'm talking about, uh, the karma of that continues the pain and confusion. If it's not coming out of our own uh, insight and freedom and true wisdom, but instead is always ensconced in fear and anger and for desires which can never fulfill their, their full promise. So are we always going to be at war with ourself or persistently using our life energies to ignore our treasured fragility of ourself and its treasure, protect it? And that can also masquerade as uh, everything is fine, okay? Yeah, everything's fine. And there's a lot of people you can ask. Maybe they're not in this room. Maybe they are. I don't know. Everything is fine, so we don't have to face our discomfort. We don't have to face that first truth. And I think we each work hard to construct a careful plan of how to bounce off our suffering. And that may be necessary for our survival. That, that probably is often the best we can do at the time. And so we have a plan, right? We have a plan of how to live our life. And we stick to it and work around it and make certain assumptions and invest in it and build, that pl- build to that plan. Which brings to mind Mike Tyson, the boxer who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. And so we all believe we can escape from the pain in our life. We just need to figure it out. And so life punches us in the nose. And the, the little secret that is not a secret at all is that life will punch us in the nose. Sickness, old age, and death. 
Nobody escapes. You're sentenced to death. You're sentenced to sickness and old age, if you live long enough. And if you're not, then you've solved that problem. So how's your plan doing? I I didn't want to read all of this, but I'm going to say some of it. Um, A writer wrote a piece um, about a a 30-year reunion that they attended. And this particular cohort, um, selected group, is from Harvard of 1988. So it's a very particular group, of course, um, which some of may be represented in this room and some may not. But given that, given that representation, um, they did a careful survey of the people that they knew 30 years later. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's a wonderful uh, and interesting thing. But I'll say a few things that they noted. No one's life turned out exactly as anticipated, not even for the most ardent planner. You know, the one who's got it perfectly down manages every detail. That's not you, of course. None of us in this room are control freaks. But most lawyers seemed either unhappy or itching for a change with the exception of those who became law professors. And that has nothing to do with this talk. It's just my take on lawyers. (laughs) And then speaking of art, Those who went into it as a career were mostly happy and often successful, but they had all in some way struggled financially. And so ditto for the first, last comment. But he has something that I know as a former monastic, and as the monastic in this room, I think, will agree. Uh, uh, Suiko, where are you? (laughs) Our stronger desire in that same pre-union class survey over more sex and more money was to get more sleep. (laughs) Um, Burning Down the House, our class favorite song by the Talking Heads, is still as good and relevant as it was was then, as, as though it was when it was blasting out of the freshman dorms. I would say that's true for me in terms of Linda Ronstadt, but I'm older. Many of the class's shyest freshmen have now become our alumni class leaders, helping to organize this reunion and others. And I want to point that out. This is arguably the most salient point of this, because it speaks to practice. It speaks to the transformation that can happen when you enter this practice and enter it with an integrity at some point, because it takes time to find our integrity and to understand what actual human integrity means in the sense of just fundamental honesty about ourselves and others and what our mind is doing and does out of habit for so many years. And then change when we connect with that in our life. Change, which is always difficult to, be, to learn how to grow up and actually be responsible for our life in a spiritual way. I'm not talking in the ordinary way. That is so challenging. And yet, happens, and I see it over and over in this practice, and it's amazing. It doesn't happen to me, but it happens to everybody else I see who practices. Because when I say it doesn't happen to me, we often are una- unaware of that change, because we're us, and we're just going along, and yet it's, you know, so this is a sangha 
in which the lay sangha is responsible for it. I mean, this, you know, we, we are embedded in a major monastery, one of the most major monasteries in the world of Zen Buddhism, Zen Mountain Monastery. And here we are as a crucial part of that. And this sangha, while we definitely get help, is run by lay students who come here and train and make it work, who do residency here and make it work. There's nothing special about any of us. And transformation happens. Humanness, in the fullest context of it, happens. Wakefulness happens. Suffering diminishes. Although that that path is not free by any means. Another relevant thing that struck me, and again, this is within a particular context and a particular way of understanding society and relationship, so please allow for that. There are other ways. Um, uh, Many classmates who were in long-lasting marriages or relationships said, said they suddenly experienced a turning point where their early relationship transformed into a mature relationship. I'm doing the best I can, one classmate told me, she said to her partner, in the middle of a particularly stressful um, exchange with her partner. I'm doing the best I can. From that moment on, she said her partner understood her imperfections were not an insult to her partner. Her actions were not an extension of herself or her partner. She was her own person, and her imperfections were what made her. Do you hear that? Her imperfections were what made her. Sometimes people forget this in the thick of relationships. My way of saying that, as someone who's been in a long-term relationship, is that a relationship that you choose to have with anybody at any level is a package deal. If you take that relationship, you take the whole relationship. I don't get to pick and choose in my partner what attributes I want to preserve and what I'm going to cut out. And I'm going to let them know that. I can tell you that does not work. And I don't get to choose and pick of that in myself either. I have to work with that because it causes harm in myself and others. But I don't get to cut off any part of myself. I have to see into myself. And I might add, nearly all the alumni said they were embarrassed by their younger selves, particularly how judgmental they used to be. That doesn't apply to any of us, I'm sure. And she noted, we have all become more generous with our I love yous. They flew freely at the reunion. We didn't rational them out to our, to, only to our intimates now. It seems we had expanded our understanding of what love is, making room for long-lost friends. Well, if that's not a description of Zen practice, I don't know what is. Other noteworthy things. A life spent drinking too much alcohol shows up 30 years later on the face. And you can substitute many other things for that alcohol. Also, for the most part, the men fared better than the women Surprise, surprise, in the earning potential and leadership department. Mm. A lack of affordable childcare and paid maternity leave had far-reaching implications for many of our classmates. Most of them feminine career, had feminine careers derailed or compromises made and money lost. Mm. A significant portion of the class, 
27, 30 years later, had died. You've probably had that experience of looking back. I, uh, in, in, my, in the hospital that I did my medical training, it's a very well-known hospital in my field, which I'm, I haven't been in for many years. Um, and because the training was so intense, the bonding was so intense, and there's an alumni association, and every week or two I get another notice of someone, it's not that big, an alumni association, another passing of people who, in my mind, are still 26 years old, the last time I saw them. In our early 50s, people seemed to feel a pressing need to speak truths and give thanks and kindness to one another before it's too late to do so. One of my freshman roommates thanked me for something that happened in 1984. Those who had lost a child had learned a kind of resilience and gratitude that was instructive to all of us. Those of us who experienced the trauma of near death or were still facing it seemed the most elated to be at the reunion. We're still here. I said to my friend who used to run a health company and had part of their face removed because of cancer. We were giggling, giddy as toddlers, practically bouncing on our toes, unable to stop hugging each other and smiling as we recounted the gruesome particulars of our near misses. So, I was also thinking, because I went to Erasmus Hall a few miles away, high school, that probably such a reunion, maybe not of 88, but certainly of 98, would not even be possible. There'd be too many dead people too scattered a society for the people who attend that high school in the last 20 or 30 years. So that takes us to... Uh, we asked for signs. The signs were sent. The birth betrayed. The marriage spent. Yea, the widowhood of every government. Signs for all to see. Do we see the signs? These signs are what we ignore at our peril. As I said before, many of us know the first noble truth of the Buddha. But how easy it is to intellectualize that and to keep it as a distance. And how easy it is, if not, to be defeated by it, to stop there in the teaching and not look at the cause of that and the optionality of that, if that's a word, and how to address it, which are the essential parts of the teaching. Any idiot knows life is suffering. Just look. But do we know how to address it? Which, just look, means look here. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd while the killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they've summoned, they've summoned up a thundercloud and they're going to hear from me. Who do you think he's talking about here? He's talking to himself. The lawless crowd and not being able to run anymore. The killers in high places say their prayers out loud. They're going to hear from me. When you step into this building, that's the start of the possibility that you will hear from yourself. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd. The crowd that demands its desires. Demands, no matter what the cost. 
Well, there is no cost. Where's the cost? I don't see any cost. You can add up the parts, but you won't have the sum. You can strike up the march. There is no drum. Every heart, every heart to love will come, but like a refugee. You can add up up the parts, but you won't have the sum. There's no answers that are linear. There's no answers here that you're going to figure out in your head and do a march towards a nice solution that fixes our suffering. Life is suffering is a pretty fundamental statement. And it ain't going away anytime soon. And the perspective of Zen practice, as I understand it, is that even with some long-term practice and insight, life is still suffering. But it's seen through. It's not a problem. And the moment I fail to see through it, it is a problem. And I create suffering. And I think that's true for anyone who practices. You know, when we first encounter this practice... No one offers us the encouragement that this is the most difficult thing that you'll ever face in your life, to do this. No one tells you that in sitting zazen, you're going to face yourself. And while there may be the initial excitement of, gee, this is great, and there's some relief from my pain, perhaps, or it just feels right, or whatever it is that you may relate to within it, sooner or later... In sitting zazen, you are going to come face to face with yourself. Now, you can spend a long time not doing that. But sooner or later, you will. And that's okay. That's the way it should be. Because each of us bring ourselves to it. And what we're willing to look at. And what we're able to look at. And what makes sense to look at in a given time and place. So the analogy for me is a flower gradually opening into the world. Gradually opens. And yet when you watch it, at no point do you see it opening. Every heart, every heart to love will come. But like a refugee. Like a refugee. We're not going to address what you see inside you, what you see inside others with the ability to bring all the things you've constructed your life around to be between you and that. To be between you and your suffering. You're not going to be able to do that. You can't take all of that stuff that limits your vision, that clogs the room of your life so that you can't see past whatever is in front of you. Something's got to go. And there's a relinquishment there and a willingness to relinquish or not, may not be willing, but there may be a realization, a stark realization that I can hold on to what I have so firmly grasped as my life and use that to stabilize my life. But it is not helping me now. It is not helping me now but I've held on so tightly for so long. Well, you let it go or don't. And it's not yes or no. There's a process to it. And there may be be many looks at that and attempts to let go what 
so binds us. So from that perspective, it's not a matter of success or failure. But it is a matter of honestly facing ourselves. It is a matter of being very simple about what is causing us pain and sorrow and probably others. And making a clear decision. Every heart, every heart to love will come. If you want that love, and that love that he's speaking of is the ability to treasure your own heart and to allow it to open. I'm not talking about self-love in whatever way that's used. I'm talking about something much more both ungraspable and tangible in a sense. That level of honesty which is instantly recognizable when we encounter it in another or in ourself. From my experience, it's what happens in the Dyson. But we're going to have to let go of some things because they don't help at a certain point. Ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We are so heavily conditioned to get it right, to make it right. We're so heavily conditioned to set an unachievable standard. And almost all of us, at least in the people I encounter within this practice, maybe it attracts people by the nature of the practice, I don't know, but have this little voice in us that's constantly whispering, you fucked it up once again. You're wrong. And the wonder of that voice is it can take anything, and I mean anything, and say, you're a failure. Once again, you failed. And it, oh, well, yeah, okay, you did that pretty good, but it could have been better. And the karma of our seeing mistakes as something evil to avoid at all costs is incredibly powerful. And so we armor ourselves, we measure ourselves, and we measure others in terms of how we should measure up to a very subjective perspective. It's never good enough. You know, I'm thinking about the creative process. Uh, occasionally I dabble in some poetry. It's actually a requirement for this job. Um, and, you know, I observe with some amusement that I've never written a poem I'm done with. You know, never. And, um, you know, I write talks, and, um, and part of my job. And I observe with some amusement in myself that I've never walked away from a talk and said, boy, that was perfect. You really got it. You know. And sometimes to my horror, I look at what I've written uh, a year or two or five years later and I go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. You know, that is so terrible. And I forget the talk I give is not in the paper. It's not in the words. You know, probably 50% of what I've written, I don't read. And 50% of what I say, I haven't written. Because the talk is something I'm doing to get to a place where I have a talk done that I can give a talk. But when we actually get to the place where we live, we live. We speak our heart, hopefully. We act out of our heart, hopefully. And so, 
you know, there is, there is no perfect offering. That's the nature of reality. The nature of reality we live in is a relative reality. So when that little voice says to you, you're not good enough, you can't do it, there's something to be heard there, something to be respected and listened. But it's a tiny part of who we are, and it's heavily conditioned. And when we, that voice is always there, or almost always there, then it's poison. It's poison. So I never ignore the voices in my head. But I've learned to laugh at a couple of them and understand they're never going away. They haven't gone away so far in my life. And there's a lot of other voices like that, that are desires or criticisms. Or, and, and so I befriend my voices. I acknowledge them. I, that's where the love will come. I work hard to love all parts of myself. That doesn't mean I listen to those voices, because disaster ensues when I do. But it does mean I respect them. You know, it's interesting, and I'm going to be direct here, and I, I'll say in advance, I hope I don't defend anyone, but at another level, it's how it is. We're working with a couple of groups, mainly at the monastery, but now here. So there's a, a Beyond Fear of Differences group, um, and part of that group is that people of color meet and say what they cannot say when white people are present. And there's a whiteness group, which we'll be meeting today. And it's for only white people. And although they haven't got there yet, they will get there to be able to explore and say what they cannot say, what they've never given themselves permission to say. If a person of color is in the room, So now all or more of you, more of yourself is being brought into vision. You know, the the monsters coming out of the closet. We all have these monsters. They're our fears. And they come out and they become visible. And they become honored. And they become loved. And then they don't have that power anymore to act in a way that harms ourself and harms others because we have some perfected idea of how we should be. Some idealized, politically correct, or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. And are these situations clean and nice and sweet? No, they are not. Not in any way. Any more than anything you love is clean and nice and sweet. I mean, we instantly recognize that as phony love. You know, the person who's always so wonderful and nice and sweet. What's that covering? When we are that way, what is that hiding? And so there's a reality here. There's a powerful reality that we're, we're asked to, to, to acknowledge within ourselves and to find ways to open up to. Because there's so much suffering in this world and in us. The suffering in the world is the suffering in us, and vice versa. So what do we have? What do we have then to rely on? We have the bells that can still ring. That's what we have. We have ourself. That's always enough when we turn it to a way that encourages our own awakening, if you want to put it in Buddhist terms. Encourages our own full humanness, if you want to put it in non-Buddhist terms. But when I say awakening, I'm not talking about some humanistic perspective that holds everybody and is very sweet and nice. 
because that ain't it. Because you are not always very sweet and nice. And I am not always very sweet and nice. And that's the practice of Zen. That's it. To see that and acknowledge it and be responsible for all of ourself, the whole being, and thereby all beings' wholeness. So ring the bells that can still ring, that you can ring. And what are those bells? <laughs> you know, there's a saying in Zen life, is one continuous mistake. That's the bells you can still ring. You know, so we have training positions here. Did you ever do your training position perfectly? No. I have a prediction. You never will. <laughs> That's why they're there. I mean, it's absurd. We ask someone who's, you know, a professor of philosophy with an IQ higher than my weight to give out chanting books, and they, they pick up the chanting books and they drop them, you know. And anybody wearing a gray robe knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know? But it's a training position. We're training to learn how to be a human being. And when you become a, a formal student, you get to do that. But there has to be a commitment to it. Because if this is not a commitment, a real commitment, which is tested, then it's abusive. It's abusive when someone says, don't hand out the, the, the book like this, hand it out like that, or whatever it is. And if you do it, you know, six months later, it's going to change, and they'll say, well, you used to do it like this, now do it like... But someone told no, 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 do it like... You know, and on and on and on. They notice all the students are laughing. <laughs> because this is the reality of it. You know, um, I was the... Once in my career, I was the, uh, the liturgist for a couple of years. Um, so starting from a place of no voice and no ta- talent, and the no talent didn't change. Um, but I had Jimon teaching me, and some of you know Jimon, who is the world's greatest rehearsal master, I'm sure. Um, and she would tra- train me and you know, help me and make it work, and it did work after a while. And just when I'd, I got it, she would change it. What is she teaching me? Is that torture or is she showing me something about myself? And what makes the difference between that being abusive and being an opening for me, a letting go for me? It's in me. It's not in her. I asked for that. I gave permission for that. That's what it means to be a student of the Dharma. You give permission and you place your trust in that. And the permission is to awaken. That's what it's about. And what does awaken mean? It means to let go of our illusionary self while respecting that illusionary self. Now, that seems a contradiction. It's not. So there's a crack. And that's the entry point. There's a crack in everything. And that's the entry point. And when you get that, when you get that everything that comes your way is an opportunity, not an opportunity to feel good, because most of the time it's not going to feel good, sometimes it might, but an opportunity to see more deeply into who you are and what this is, then you see that teachers are everywhere. The clues are everywhere. It can be frustrating, it can be scary as shit. But it's also very thorough when you get this. And this is willing to be completely lost. 
you know, that, that step when you're on that, if you've ever been on a high diving board and you look down and you say, holy, I can't do that. You know, that's death. And then you take that step and you fall into the water, plunk, <laughs> but you're still alive. You know, that's what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I, I look for that crack, that crack in everything. Because this practice shows us that's the opportunity. And we have to weigh that against our feelings about that because something's being gained, an opportunity, and something's being lost. Are holding on as tightly as we can to what seems to make us safe. And only the realization that it's not making us safe allows us to open our hands and step into that with a willingness that may be very different than what we're feeling, but which offers us the true hope of waking up. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.